Hello to our loyal listeners. We are so proud and excited and honored to have been nominated by the Willamette Week as the best podcast in Portland. It would mean so much to us if you could take a moment of your time to click the show notes in the episode you're listening to right now. And there's a link right there. Click on that. You can go give us a vote. We would be so appreciative. Thank you so much for your time. There are nearly 20,000 murders annually in the United States. Perhaps it's the weather, but the Pacific Northwest has become the notorious home of serial killers and bizarre crimes. We're here to discuss those murders, to try to understand the motives, respect and remember the victims, and explore the humanity of it all. I'm Emily Rowney. And I'm Alicia Holland. And And this this is Murder in in the the Rain. In today's day and age, we find ourselves bombarded with TV and social media ads for products we're told we need. We need it to improve our skin or bolster our health or make people swoon from our beauty. While today's story takes place in another century, for some reason, I think people would still be drawn into the guise of medical care under a total charlatan if they saw her post on Instagram. Picture this. A doctor claims that she can cure any ailment with a new type of diet. A fast. A fast that will convince your body to rid itself of all toxins that cause disease. She claims she can heal your rheumatism, your epilepsy, and even cancer. She alone can improve your life and save you from the brink of death. I'm intrigued by a lady doctor from old times. Yeah, that alone is exciting. Today, I'd like to tell you about a woman who had a dream, a dream to build a wellness retreat, a place for people to come and be treated by her expert hands. After years of building a following and applying her cure, the Wilderness Heights Institute of Natural Therapeutics opened in the lush wilderness of Washington State in 1910. And while the doctor had much success and people from all over the world flocked to her for a chance to cure what ails them, Her climb to medical notoriety was at the expense and wealth of the innocent people who sought her out for medical help. Instead of the promised cure, their lives were short-lived and fraught with suffering. This is the story of a place locals call Starvation Heights and a woman named Dr. Linda Burfield Hazard, otherwise known as the Starvation Doctor. In 1906, Dr. Linda Hazard moved her small medical practice from Minnesota to the Pacific Northwest. She initially settled in Seattle, Washington with her husband, Samuel. While Linda began treating patients with her medical cure, she worked to write a book about it so that she could reach a wider audience. In 1908, she published Fasting for the Cure of Disease. Linda, formerly a nurse and osteopath, previously studied with Dr. Edward Dewey, Dr. Dewey had published two books that promote the therapeutic benefits of fasting, one of which was based on a patient that he exhausted regular methods and treatments on before ultimately resorting to a fast and curing him in 34 days. Linda had been quite taken with his work, and after some convincing, she ended up working as his protege for a number of years. She then decided to add her own methods to his fasting and move to open her own practice. Here is an excerpt from her book. And pardon me, because it's a little old-timey. 
Relieving physical illness by voluntarily withholding food is based upon the conclusion of the argument, the various names attributed to the forms in which diseases manifest there is, but one cause for all of its out and inward signs. The sole source of its ills is impure blood. The cause of in blood is imperfect digestion. So basically what she's saying is our poor digestion causes impure blood, which is actually the root of all disease. And by withholding food or starving your body, you can cure it from anything. Linda believed that the true cure would be a combination of fasting, daily enemas, or what they called internal baths, as well, <laughs> as well as osteopathy. So osteopathy is essentially a really deep massage of your bones, joints, and muscles. I mean, that's a. I'd take that trade for an internal bath. We'll talk a, a little bit more about it and you might change your mind. But <laughs> in order to draw in the masses to her cure, Linda began advertising in magazines and newspapers to sell her book. So basically, she'd advertise her book. People would write in. She would explain what the book is and they would send in $1.25, which is roughly $35 these days. Ooh. And then they would be sent back the book. This not only helped her grow her patient base locally, but she was also making money from people all over the world that she could use to open her retreat in Olala, Washington, which is just a ferry ride away from Seattle. The advertisements and word of mouth of a natural cure-all reached two wealthy British heiress sisters, Claire and Dorothea Williamson. The Williamsons were orphaned and very, very wealthy. Their father passed away when Claire, the younger of the two sisters, was a baby, and their mother then passed when they were teenagers. After that, they lost their sisters, Gertrude and Ethel, from scarlet fever. So they're left with a big family, loads of aunts and uncles all over the world, but their immediate family is quite small. They had this treasured governess named Margaret Conway that actually called them sister, and they would call her Tootie. Her nickname was, oh, Tootie, my dearest. And so she was basically like a sister, like uh, their extended family. And a governess is like nanny Yes, she was like a nursemaid. You know, I don't watch Downton Abbey. She raised them as children, but she was also an important figure their entire life, but I couldn't find the the age of her, but I think they were really similar in mm. ages. Probably why they called her sister. Being young, single, and filthy rich, the Williamson sisters were no strangers to traveling the world to visit their family and to take part in the finer things in life. In fact, they would likely be a couple of Instagram influencers today if they were alive. They traveled abroad year-round and tried different medical fads, healing centers, and sanitariums along the way, hoping to cure a myriad of ailments they believed they suffered from. Both ladies were in their 30s and complained of ailments from digestive issues to swollen glands to issues with Claire's uterus in which she claimed caused her pain for months on end. When Dora heard of Dr. Hazard and her Fasting for the Cure of Disease book, she wanted to reach out to her immediately. After all, Dr. Hazard was the only licensed fasting specialist in the entire world. The Williamson sisters were quite taken by Dr. Hazard's posting, and they wanted to learn as much as they could about the cure. In the fall of 1910, Claire responded to the newspaper advertisement to obtain her very own copy of the book. After writing to detail their illnesses, within a few days, they received a copy of the book. 
They devoured it cover to cover, and the sisters were so impressed with the ideas the doctor presented that they continued their correspondence for months, keeping the doctor fully apprised of their diet and every symptom they experienced. Each day, Claire was growing more and more concerned with her uterus pains, so Linda prescribed her a method to help with it, and what this was was wadded-up cotton that was soaked in boric acid and glycerin and was then inserted into her vagina three days a week for 24 hours. Sounds great, right? Mm-hmm. She explained that this would help strengthen her ligaments and muscles. I'm not sure how. I really had looked into maybe Googling some of that and finding it out. But <laughs> I was do, a little concerned. Let's do a hands-on trial. <laughs> okay, sure. That sounds I'll great. give it a whirl. While the ladies tried to adhere to Dr. Linda's prescriptions, as well as the dietary restrictions like eliminating bread and sugar and applying daily enemas, they found it very difficult to do it on their own. It was decided that they would move to the West and take part in this new sanitarium being built by Dr. Hazard. They wanted to undergo the fasting cure under the watchful eye of Dr. Linda Hazard. Also, are you going to see a doctor who goes by Dr. Hazard? I know. Just to back up, she started off as Dr. Burfield, was married to a man and was Dr. Perry, and then married Uh, another man and became Dr. Hazard. So I think a lot of people referred to it as Dr. Burfield, but I can't be positive. You'll see the name interchange throughout all of the documentation. A few months after the Williamson's initial correspondence, they began their move to the Pacific Northwest. Linda explained that the sanitarium was not quite ready, so she set them up in a hotel in Seattle called the Buena Vista. The Williamsons checked in and began treatment in February of 1911. Linda split her time between Seattle and Olala, which was just a ferry, ferry ride across the ocean. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> it's just a little like bay. Anyway. <laughs> You're so cheeky. I know. Oh, my gosh. No, I honestly think it's less than an hour ferry ride, but she would go back and forth from Seattle to Alala. So when she wasn't there, she had a nurse living on the premises with the girls to administer all of her prescriptions. So the treatment began on day one with a full body massage, which sounds great until you hear how it's described. So basically, Dr. Hazard is taking her fists and just pounding their bodies head to toe, backs, fronts, foreheads, you name it. She's just pounding on it. I'm still not seeing the downside of this. Go ahead. We'll get there. (laughs) After the massage, they would then begin their dietary regimen. So this I could not handle. So basically what the fasting cure is, besides the massage and enemas, is a vegetable broth. So Linda would boil stewed tomatoes or asparagus, boil it down, strain the vegetables out, and you're left with a vegetable stock. And that is what the girls would eat. So two cups a day, twice a day, one cup of this broth. And if you're lucky, a tablespoon of orange juice in the morning. And that's it. Yikes. They did note that there may have been butter added to the stock, but honestly, fatty. Can you can you get through that? Yikes. That would be I feel like that would be so counter to like feeling better. Like that gives me a headache just to exactly. think about and going a day. There on is broth. a there is a man that under 
underwent this fasting and he actually had a diary of the of the food and every day was you know like a cup of broth and maybe an orange or something but he would document how he felt and there was dizziness fainting his eyes would get really yellow it was very disturbing but linda would talk them through it and be like oh you're almost healed like this is your body reading of toxins right right So in addition to the restrictive diet, they were also doing multiple vigorous walks a day, so really exerting all the energy they had in their body. And during the first few days of being treated, the ladies were were basically groomed by this woman being told all these wonderful stories of people who had gone through the cure and were free of disease. They had firsthand witnesses describing their interaction with Dr. Hazard. So just in a, a mere week, they were so trusting and admiring of the doctor. She had them under her control, really. Before long, the sisters grew weaker and weaker from the lack of nutrients, heavy exercise, and regular enemas. Initially, the enemas were about 30 minutes, but eventually they grew to be over three hours each day. Okay, so we're not talking like... We're not talking a, a quick suppository, like, <laughs> popping in something up there. We're talking full on like, yeah, anal douching. And I will, I have a, a witness later on that we'll talk about who describes what it entailed. But it, I mean, this was a huge undertaking to the point where they would just lay there. This was part of their daily life for hours, just lay in the bathtub and have this done to them. Didn't that, wasn't that a trend like 15 years ago? And Yo, it was on yeah. TV. Even. There's coffee enemas too. I remember oh, watching God. a like my obsession show. About- but there was, yeah, there was somebody that went on a, re- a reality show, like a not a Kardashian, but something. And they like showed them take this huge thing. And, mm-hmm. and it's like. I even remember in college, I had a friend who lived with these Mormon girls. And one of them was obsessed with enemas. She did them weekly and would just be like hanging out on the bathroom floor, like out of the door, like, hey, guys. She would just do them at home? Yeah. Yeah. That's not right. Part of me was always curious, but I've never tried it. <sighs> Patreon. <laughs> you you want to see us take an enema, huh? <laughs> so the doctor insisted that the enemas were an essential part of the therapy. It got to the point where these girls could not even hold themselves up, so they had hammocks strung over the bathtub so that they could just lay there because they couldn't lift themselves up. Side note, enemas are risky just in general. So you risk perforating your rectum, your intestines, and damage to internal organs. So just multiply that by every single day for months. And that bacteria is supposed to be there. Like it has a job. So you're likely getting sicker and sicker and sicker because of it. During their tenure at Buena Vista Apartments, a neighbor describes the girls as being very unsettling. She basically says you could hear constant moaning from the apartment and that it was like they were constantly in pain. Neighbors also said that the drastic change of appearance in the women was very scary. They went from arriving at a healthy 120 pounds for small girls And just two weeks in, they looked to be under 100 pounds. Though the treatment was obviously severe, the sisters had total faith in Dr. Hazard. So they continued with her methods for weeks and officially moved into the sanitarium in Alala to be cared for full time. To move them from Seattle to Alala, they required an ambulance because they couldn't even get up to walk to the downstairs to the, I guess, the 
the cart with the horse. So they had an actual ambulance come in. And there are witnesses who say they watched them get loaded in and they had to be between 70 and 100 pounds. And I'm guessing you're in that much pain from not eating and everything else going on that it either does go away or your body like doesn't even feel like the uterine pain or anything else going on. You're just like, everything hurts. Yeah. All the time. So yeah, I think my uterus is better because my head wants to explode. They talk about how they were constantly hungry for weeks and weeks and then it just stopped. They're no longer hungry, refuse food. Food makes them sick at a certain point. So they think it's working. And then there's the doctor cooing in their ear. You're almost better. Just a few more days. Eventually, they get to Alala, and Dr. Hazard immediately separates the girls. So they are they are codependent spinster sisters. They're constantly together. They sleep in the same bed, and now she's separating them, putting them in different rooms. And she uses this time to inflict a ton of control over them. She starts by telling each sister that the other was sicker, physically weak, and mentally unstable. And then she convinces them that she needs to take over their finances, Her husband, Sam, has a big hand in this as well. And there's a lot of rumors that they're forging documents and and signing their traveler's checks and just writing them to themselves. Eventually, Dr. Hazard convinces Dora to sign over legal guardianship to her. So now she's the sole beneficiary of her fortune, which at the time was about $500,000. Today would be over $13 million. Wow. Wow. Dora starts urging the doctor that she wants to see her sister and she's even sneaking into her room and she says when she finally gets to see her, it's like a skeleton and the doctor pulls her out and explains that she's on the brink of death, she's so sick and she's crazy and you need to leave her alone and just days later, Claire dies. Linda actually does the autopsy of all patients that die in her care. This, of course, is very weird because she's a fasting specialist and not a medical doctor, even though she goes by doctor. She's also not a coroner, which are the people that would typically do this at the time. And of course, every single patient that dies is not noted as having died from starvation. They are instead uh, cancer victims or cirrhosis of the liver, something that the doctor could never have controlled, that they was just bound to die anyway. There was a lot of talk that the doctor was actually in cahoots with a local funeral home, Butterworth and Sons, which interestingly also owned the ambulance that came to pick up the girls to take them. So there's a lot of whispering that she was paying them to look the other way and perhaps do darker things. After Claire's death, their uncle John Herbert comes to Alala to visit Dora. Oddly enough, he lives in Portland, and he is shocked to find out his nieces are sick and that they are even in the Northwest. He had no idea. So he goes there, and at around the same time, their governess, Margaret Conway, shows up too. And what's really weird about her showing up is she lives in Australia, and she says she gets a telegram that is very vague. It says the name of a ship, the, the date that she should leave, and Claire. That's it. And she comes because it's so weird right. and out of the norm. So she arrives within a couple of days of John, and they right away realize there's something very wrong with Dora. She's skin and bones. She's clearly under the control of Dr. Hazard. And Dr. Hazard's doing everything she can to keep her from mailing them letters, to keep her from leaving the sanitarium. The governess and Uncle John have additional concerns when they see Claire's body. So they go to the funeral home to see Claire, and they're expecting a emaciated body after they've seen Dora. 
And it's estimated Claire's probably less than 50 pounds, but the body they see is not emaciated. It doesn't have the same color hair. And they are adamant that that's not Claire, that the bodies have been switched. The old switcheroo. Exactly. So that's where some of these whisperings between the doctor and the funeral oh, home right. being in cahoots is coming from. But they let it go really because they're more concerned about getting Dora off the premises. So Margaret and Uncle John are working to try and get her out of the wellness retreat because they believe she's being starved to death. Uncle John does have to go back to work, but Margaret stays on site with Dora and tries to help her by sneaking flour into her broth to help maintain the little weight she does have. But the doctor is always interrupting, popping in unannounced. She's even seen wearing Claire's clothing and jewelry after Claire has died. And that is really creepy. In addition, Margaret outlines that the mailbox was kept locked and the only time she could ever get a letter out was when she ran into the mailman himself and was able to sneak it into his hand. The doctor would control all mail going in and out of the premises. About how many people were at the sanitarium? So I think they had 20 small cabins. So there was a main building and then small cabins. Dora occupied her own cabin. Um, I, I never really got a number, but I would guess there's at least 10 people. Okay, so it wasn't just the sisters. No, it wasn't just people. them, but the okay. story definitely focuses on them. Yeah. Uncle John gets away from work, comes back to the sanitarium, and confronts Dr. Hazard about getting Dora out. The doctor casually reminds him that she actually has guardianship over Dora, and Dora is not allowed to leave, and that she must continue her treatment. They then discover Dora had signed a power of attorney to Sam on May 27th, 1911. But Dora doesn't really remember doing anything other than signing a few extra checks for money she owed them for her monthly payment of living there. And the uncle just keeps pressing and pressing. And finally, he ends up paying over $800 to just get them to leave. So the doctor finally says, "Okay, for $875, you can take Laura or Dora and go. They finally leave, but they don't have her belongings. They don't have her thousands of dollars worth of diamonds or her clothing or her traveler's checks. They just get her out of there. So the uncle comes back and forth trying to get her things and obtain them. But the doctor gives like a watch here and there and really just kind of eludes it and ignores him. So it makes me wonder if she was selling things or she just wanted to keep them for herself. Mm -hmm. So during this back and forth of trying to get the stuff, Margaret discovers that Claire had written a last wishes document, which was really fishy because it was typed. And Claire had very neat and tidy handwriting, kept a diary. It's not something she would have typed. And... Sam Hazard says, well, I typed it for her. She was too weak, mm-hmm. but she told me everything to write and she signed it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this was super fishy. So they get Dora out. She weighs less than 60 pounds, but she's finally happy and ready to take legal action. She went to a judge and the judge did revoke that guardianship. So that was avoided and Dr. Hazard actually had to pay Dora back much of the money. Not all of it. They did say she could keep some of it for her being there for months. But the money that she had written checks to herself was to be returned. But that wasn't just what Dora wanted. She didn't want just money. She wanted justice for Claire, who died there under that cure. Dora went to a man named Vice Consul Lucian Agassi and an attorney called Frank Kelly. So they agreed to do some interviews and see if they had enough witness testimony to lead to the arrest. What they discovered was they had plenty. So they went ahead 
and prosecuted the doctor. So lots of really disturbing details came to light from interviewing the people who had daily contact with Dr. Hazard and neighbors that lived near the area. And this was they were prosecuting for the death of Claire or just? Yes. So they were going to court for two reasons. So there was the death of Claire, but then also suing for damages of $25,000 for the death of Claire. Okay. Basically, she wouldn't have died if she wasn't under her care. Some of the most heinous murders are the ones you've never even heard of. From Reach Freaks in Himalaya comes Invisible Choir, a new form of investigative true crime storytelling that brings the most depraved and under-investigated crimes to life. They slammed the kid on the ground and stabbing their baby out here in the middle of the They're stabbing their baby? With actual audio from the events, including 911 calls, police interrogations, and confessions. I shot my wife in the temple of her head, and um, I put her in the freezer. I checked on her at night, she's not there. We'll take you on an unforgettable emotional journey to the marginalized communities and crime scenes themselves to bring visibility to the unseen. Download Invisible Choir today on Himalaya or wherever you listen to podcasts. Residents of the area told Lucian that it was not uncommon to run into starving patients during the day. So they're, like I said before, they were not only being restricted on what they could eat, but they'd be forced to do lots of exercise. So they would walk up and down the road near Lala and people would see them. And one witness who was a child at the time says she remembers one of them crawling along the road because they were just too weak to walk. And that the people were begging for food constantly. So this little girl's mother would feed them, like bring these emaciated skeletons, which she described as looking like Holocaust victims, and she would feed them. Around the area, they started referring to it as Starvation Heights, and that's where the name kind of took flight, right? It was called the Wilderness Heights, but everyone was basically saying it was full of starving people. The kids were scared of the area. They were scared of the starvation doctor who was described as having a very intimidating presence. She was pretty, but she was also like very strong and fit. Stories of other deaths came to light during the investigations and subsequent trial of Dr. Hazard. When practicing medicine in Minnesota, a woman named Gertrude had died under the doctor's care. A coroner had brought this this concern to light because he was like, Uh, obviously this person was starved to death and he's like, we got to get this quack out of here. But there was no law against practicing fasting, especially with willing adults. Yeah, I was going to say they were the ones that signed up for it. Right. But what he was saying is she can't call herself a doctor. She's not a doctor. She's a total quack. So a lot of people agreed with him, but there was nothing they can do. So then she just quietly, you know, moved to the to the West. And then another death was possibly attributed to her. This this guy, Eugene Wakelin, was wealthy, and he was found dead on her property with a bullet wound to the head, and they filed it away as a suicide, but oddly enough, all of his wealth had been transferred to Dr. Hazard before he died. Convenient. Right. So she was able to fund a big part of her wellness retreat based on the funds she had from him. Another man, Ivan Flux, another karaoke name, I think, 
uh, died under her care. And like the others, the doctor had appointed herself administer of his estate before he died. So more and more stories like this came to light. And there was speculation that at least 14 people could be correlated to her. Lure them in, take their money, and then they die. So one one thing I found incredibly interesting when I was reading about Lucian, the one of the lawyers, is he actually manipulated the media to fuel this narrative about Dr. Hazard to get more publicity. And what came of it was he couldn't help but noticing that the story was really familiar. So just a couple of years prior, a case out of the Midwest about a female serial killer came to light. And her name was Belle Gunness. Do you guys know Belle Gunness? Yes. Yes. One of my favorite stories. So for those of you who don't know her, she's a Norwegian-American serial killer. And she started killing after realizing the insurance money she could get from um, deaths and fires. So her candy store that she owned with her husband actually went up in flames. And they got so much money from it, she thought, huh, I can make a career out of this. So from there, she kills her husband and makes it look like an accident, gets his insurance money as well as many, many suitors. She grew infamous after authorities realized that this woman would post advertisements in the newspaper seeking a partner to help her care for her lucrative farm. She would end the post with things like, triflers need not apply, which I am going to make us t-shirts because I think that's (laughs) awesome. She would correspond with the men, convince them to move all of their assets into cash that could be given to her. And she really was looking for people that didn't have a lot of family. And she'd be like, just, you know, leave your life and come Mm -hmm. live with me. I'm pretty and I've got this great farm. So they'd get there and then they would die. And one man grew concerned because he knew his brother was going there. He knew what he was doing. He thought it was suspicious. So after... Calling the authorities and the authorities actually blaming him for some things. They finally went out to the property and discovered a bunch of bodies, like all over the farm, including those of her own stepchildren. But she was never apprehended because lo and behold, a fire occurred on the property and the headless body of a woman was discovered. And they just said, oh, Belle's dead. But people who knew her was like um she's like six inches taller and about 70 pounds heavier that can't be her did they account for the missing head and the height no it's that's why it's one of my favorite stories so (laughs) after a few years there's actually multiple spottings of her right so i mean she just lived out her life on other people's wealth and dr hazard reminded lucian of this he basically said she lured wealthy impressionable people by posting advertisements And then she would slowly kill them while she controlled their wealth. The original Craigslist. Seriously. Despite overwhelming claims of death and witness accounts of the starving, Dr. Hazard still had many supporters. People claimed to have been healed by her, and it left a lot of people confused on, is she really a murderer? It was a three-week trial, and it was super dramatic. People from both sides of the spectrum came in. Some were sure she was a cold-blooded killer. Others were like, no, she's this misunderstood miracle worker, and she's ahead of her time. It was basically a telenovela. Um, The book I read on this that I highly promote, Starvation Heights by Greg Olson, goes into a lot of detail about the trial and just how it was basically everyone's entertainment. One woman in an earlier trial that we'll talk about a little later, she was actually kicked out for taking pictures in the front row. And she was like, yeah, this is like the best thing that's ever happened. (laughs) It's so exciting. (laughs) 
So one of the more dramatic aspects of the trial was the testimony of Essie Cameron. Essie was a teenage nurse who lived on the property and helped care for the heiress sisters. She described the sounds of the sisters' cries when they were massaged by the doctor. She also said they would be forced to take baths in scalding water that even she couldn't touch. That she was, it was so hot she wouldn't touch it, yet they were just thrown into it. The sisters um, were not allowed to eat anything, so she would really want to feed them. And the doctor said, no, you'll, you'll kill them if you feed them. You can't do that. And then she also supported that Hazard kept them apart. So she would force them apart and would not give them access to their own belongings, their own clothes, their own jewelry. She kept it completely away from them. Now, the enemas the women were described as having taken went into a little more detail here. So she had described it as, yes, they took hours. And that is because they used 12 gallons of water each day. 12 gallons. Yikes. I know, right? So worse than all of this was Essie's retelling of what she saw the day Claire died. So Linda was known for doing her own autopsies. She actually did them in her bathroom. So what she would do is she would put an ironing board above the bathtub. Is this an enema bathtub as well? I think so, yeah. It was a multi-purpose bathtub. cursed bathtub. So she would lay the body... And she would perform the autopsy. But before she could get to the autopsy, Essie went into the bathroom. And she said she'll never get the sight of that corpse out of her head. It was so emaciated. It was nothing but a skeleton. The skin was mottled. And there was a definite, like, putrid odor coming from her. Not necessarily a death odor, but, like, a starving Slowly rotting away. Exactly. And she said that her stomach was so concave, you could have fit a gallon jug of water in it. And the eyes were, of course, bulging out of the head. They looked huge because the rest of her was so small. So that description directly contradicts the state of the body that was shown to John and Margaret. And this is why everyone thinks they swapped the bodies because she wanted to show a corpse that wasn't as sickly looking. Mm -hmm. Look, I, I did everything I could. She was already sick. Yep. And... Look how great she looks. Even exactly, though she died. it wasn't it wasn't the the fasting cure that did it. At the end of the trial, Linda Hazard was found guilty of manslaughter and sent to the Washington uh, State Penitentiary in Walla Walla. Now, also with that, the Washington State Board of Medical Examiners revoked her license. Now, her sentence was actually two to twenty years. So basically, you could get out as early as two, but it could be up to twenty. And unfortunately, in the usual form of disappointment that these cases take, she was set free two years into her sentence. The governor at the time, Ernest Linster, gave her a pardon, but it was under the condition that she leave the United States and does not practice medicine. So she goes to New Zealand, where some of her wealthier supporters live. And what does she do? Practice medicine? Yep. So she gets right back into it. And after a handful of years, she comes right back to Olala. Everything's forgotten. And she opens a school so that she can practice this again. And guess what? Other people die and nothing really comes of it. There was no one that was still around to be like, oh, they were around. They're scared of her. know that girl? The thing was, people were willingly coming there. So there was a watchful eye kept on her to make sure she didn't treat children. If if in the event she treated children, they would have arrested her. And she was arrested. She was arrested for practicing medicine without a license. But she got around it by saying, I'm a teacher. I'm teaching the fasting cure. 
So she lived a long life and she practiced the fasting. And in 1938, she died after giving herself the cure. She was for real. Yeah, she was about 20 days into her own fast and she died. I think she it was originally she had pneumonia or something. But I'm mind boggled with this case because after reading so many articles and an entire book about it, I'm still wondering, is she a delusional person who really fully believes in her cure and just was took the opportunity of stealing people's wealth? Because obviously she's criminal. Her husband right. is criminal. But was she really a sadist was she purposely doing this to kill people yeah because like if she had started out with like i did this you know i had cancer and i did this and my cancer went away you know like a fluke thing and then you become like all about it and then like i don't care if people are dying because it works but the fact that she died by because in my head i'm like oh she's it's just snake oil like right she knows it's bs but people were saying oh she healed me and there is something to be said like there are a lot of people with intolerances to food that oh, fasting sure. may have improved for their sure. health. But it's just crazy to think, well, she ended up dying taking it herself. So maybe she truly believed in it. But everything else that she did. I know. And that counters that. Well, and the, the thing money is like. And the guardianships. Her and, the- and Sam were clearly criminals. So one of the things I didn't talk about, but you can read in the book, which is fascinating, is the way they got together. He was married already Mm -hmm. he went to prison for bigamy because he married linda and he toggled between these two women playing them against each other in court the the previous wife saying well i'll drop the charges if you come back to me and then he finds out she's coming into a bunch of money so he's like yeah but then when he finally gets out of prison he's like no linda's the one so it's they're just like a history of criminal activity and I think maybe she did learn the swindling of people from sam but the question is is she this cold-hearted serial killer or was she just a misunderstood I think you doctor? Ha- no, I think you have to. Well, and it's also like, yeah, did she believe in it so much? Like that she she became malicious because she believed in it because she was just like steadfast in her ideas of it. So it was like, no, it doesn't matter if they're dying because this works for the 2% or whatever that it works on. Right. Like, she believed it so much. But then it's like, then why are you taking guardianships? And why are you swapping bodies out? And she out? had a lot of money. And why are you doing autopsies? And at one point, the Lucian went to the bank to be like, did you know Claire's dead? And they were like, no, I didn't. She had like $100,000 or $1,000. I can't remember. I know there's a big difference there well, to us. But, you know, <laughs> time, time. Uh, you know, yeah, and he had no idea. So they had just been acting as if Claire was alive and stealing her money. So, I mean, there was some definite mishandling there. I, at time to time, I go back and forth. I just could not imagine starving someone for months without getting some sort of sick satisfaction out of it, you know? Yeah, and just such arrogance of like, yeah, I know I'm not a doctor, but I'm a doctor, and here's what's going to yeah. fix you, and I'll just do the autopsy, and I'm a control freak, and I'm... Like, I have to laugh, though, that she was the only fasting specialist in the world, yet there was a man who wrote two books on it and taught her everything she knew about fasting. He wasn't even a specialist. People think she kind of like dubbed it on herself and convinced someone. She was charming. And, you know, these people are. They can convince you of anything. And that was what she did. And, I mean, these were very wealthy people. And maybe just flat out sociopathic of like. Yeah, could be i do want to say before i move into this next part 
if you're interested in this case, you have to read Starvation Heights by Greg Olson. He is such a good writer. It's super vivid. And there were times where I was laughing because his descriptions of people were so hilarious. I have to read you this one. Nellie B. Sherman had a high forehead and haggard eyes set so uncomfortably close together, they pinched her nose into a yelp. At 40, she already had the kind of loose, wrinkled mouth that suggested a paper sack that had been opened and closed many times. Oh, my God. It's hilarious. Is that us sitting around and people watching? I know, right? So I highly recommend the book. You're, it's really long, so it took me a lot longer to read than anticipated, but it goes into detail about... Their, their lives before Alala and how Sam was this crazy alcoholic who would walk to town and buy a case of vanilla extract, the little bottles, and he would drink it to get drunk on his way home. Be I think he was like embarrassed to buy alcohol. So he what? would buy things that had alcohol. It's great. So he has little details. He grew up that in the area. That can't be good for you. I know. But I mean, he grew, he grew up in the area. He knows a lot of the, the descendants of these people. So it's just very, very thorough. So check out that book. But now, and read more about your review or a video of oh, your yeah, review. Oh, yeah, you can go on, online and read it. On, on our website, murderintherain.com. Hashtag murder reads. Murder reads. That's the tab. <laughs> so now for the fun stuff. The reason I chose this book initially is I was in the bookstore when we first started the podcast looking for, for cases, and I wanted to find something old timey, and the book grabbed my attention. But as I started researching it online, I realized there are a lot of ties to Supernatural. So that's why Ooh, I wanted it Halloween. for a Halloween episode. And it's old-timey crimey for Josh. Exactly. So as you can imagine, the mystery and lore of this unique case lives on in Olala. Much of that lore has been debunked. For instance, there was a rumor that for every death that happened on the property, a tree was planted. And because this is the lush wilderness, oh. that would mean a lot of people died. So that was, of course, debunked. They couldn't possibly find that many bodies, although there is a graveyard nearby. So it, it could be part of that oh, as okay. well. But not that long ago, maybe 20, 30 years ago, a family purchased it, the Jones family, and they would talk about a lot of hauntings that occurred. Because it's all still like the it's cabin still set there. up. And so once she moved back from New Zealand, the new school burned down, but the original sanitarium was still there. And that is what the Jones family Ooh. turned into their house. So still intact is the original bathtub. Oh where she God. not only did enemas, she did autopsies. Why did they buy it and not just turn it into like a haunted? I think they like it. Hangout. So, so the original parts, the bathtub, the sink, a lot of the flooring. So it's still there, and they claim that they feel constantly watched in the house. Every single person in the family has had an experience from doing the dishes and seeing a ghostly face in the window to just feeling someone in the room with you. The littlest son, he would say. There's a boy that won't talk hiding behind the couch. Like this Ugh, little barf. ghostly boy was there all the time. They even at one point. Which, by the way, is weird since she didn't treat kids. Just saying. Well, they're, she she did, though. What? I didn't bring it up. But th do you know, um, I is it Ivar's Seafood Restaurant in Seattle? Yeah. So Ivar, the original Ivar, his mother was treated at Wilderness Heights. And so was he. They both <gasps> went there. And I the thought the whole thing was like to keep. They well, were watching to after keep kids. they were flagged of her murdering people, they kept watch. But originally, oh, she, she treated was. everyone. Oh, so my Ivar God. and his mother went there. The mother died. Ivar <gasps> lived on. 
But there were other kids that were treated. Uh, a neighborhood boy was treated and he survived. They think it was food allergies and that's why it worked right. on him. But, you know, they're so they're very well have could have been a little boy oh, that died. Boy. But anyway, this this kid would be like constantly talking about the speechless kid. And they had a psychic come on the property for a talk show in the early 90s. Donahue. And they blindfolded her. And she didn't know where she was, and she picked up the vibe of this little speechless boy as well. So it's corroborated. Anyway, they also claim that I think it was like a grandmother or an aunt was sitting there and watched as a light bulb unscrewed itself from a lamp right in front of her eyes. So lots of creepy things happen, but perhaps one of the creepiest was a team of ghost hunters from Washington went on site to try to capture this on video and EVP. So on on video, they caught a couple of orbs that, of course, are explained as like supernatural energy. Definitely not dust. Definitely not dust. So they also caught on EVP some sounds in the background, and we're going to play that sound for you today. Spooky. So what you'll hear if you listen closely is a woman's voice saying, dig us up. But also I have a theory on those that you could literally say it says anything and that's what you'll hear. Okay, go ahead. Roll that tape, Danny. (laughs) So they've casually looked for additional bodies on the property. There is speculation that at least 40 people died there. And there is this ravine that the author of this book, Starvation Heights, thinks the bodies were thrown to and that it's so far down that the elements and animals would have gotten to the bodies so there's no evidence. But that, my friends, is the ghostly connection of the very real nightmare story that is Starvation Heights and Dr. Linda Hazard. Is that place on Airbnb? I was going to see if we could camp there. Yeah. Because the the owners have, they did some demolition in recent years, but they have let people camp. Do they have the bathtub? Can I take a nap in the bathtub? Uh, Oh, here we go. Here we go. Here we go, one more time, everybody's feeling fine. Here we go now. Here we go. Here we go. I don't know that. I don't laugh very often, so when I do, it really... Wow, what a sad life. Well, I've been by myself for days. You don't listen to funny things or watch funny things or... I watched Mindhunter all day yesterday. Hilarious. That's the kind of shit I watch. <laughs> you don't like look at memes? You don't text people? Oh, uh, I smiled at a few cat I videos. smiled. <laughs> I s- you sound like a psychopath. I haven't laughed for days. I did smile at a couple cat videos. <laughs> they were really cute. It was a cat in a rain jacket. And it said, cats in Oregon be like. <laughs> it was just walking in the rain. <laughs> oh, my God. We got to get you out of the house. People guess what they are. I would gag though because I hate foam. Oh, you don't like the ASMR where they're like, oh God, when they touch the microphone? Absolutely not. I'd rather die. Speaking of. Like this, when this brush is on here, it takes a lot to compose the fact that I feel like my teeth are going to fall out. Okay. I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm ready. Sorry, my boot brushed that. 
Cool. A boob brush. I'm going to isolate that for sure. Shit. <laughs> That's the sound of Emily's breast brushing across the microphone. You can buy it on Patreon for $5. <laughs> we have male listeners. We do. Fourthly, I would buy that because it'd be funny. Be like, today Alicia put butter in between her boobs and slapped them around. Oh my God. <laughs> I love that our formula of warming up and it's always, why did I write that? Why do I say it like that? <laughs> this is mumbo jumbo. Okay. Just read the words. All right. So it's 1910. Let's see. Yeah, see? Okay. 1910. The sole source of ills is impure blood. The cause of the blood is imperfect digestion. And I'm DNA. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, come on down, see? Come on down to the racetrack. All right. Okay, one more. I'm on the set of Wild Hearts Can't Be Broken. Oh my God, I love that movie. Who doesn't? I want to watch it. Well, yeah, it's a Sunday. Everyone wants to watch that on a Sunday. So good. All right. She? All right, she? At least that's almost something that might be relevantly medical as opposed to like the men doctors that were like, come on in. You just need to get fingered and you'll feel all better because you're hysterical. <laughs> Here, let me masturbate you. You'll yeah. feel better. So, your I mean, demons will leave your body. Okay. Serious. In all seriousness, though. Dr. The- Prolapse. <laughs> Murder in the Rain is produced and edited by Josh McCullough. Written and hosted by Emily Rowney and Alicia Holland. Artwork by Jamie Costa. Music by Kai Pfeiffer at kyfifer.com. Check out our website, murderintherain.com, for additional information on all cases, a fun interactive map, and be sure to subscribe so you can receive our newsletter. Check out the Mad Props page for coupon codes from some of our sponsors. We love your reviews and seeing them on all streaming platforms, especially iTunes. And check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And suck my balls. (laughs) Please put that in. (laughs) 